This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 4th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. The message is by Father Ron Baird. To understand today's Gospel lesson, we need to go back a little bit and talk about the last two Sundays and what has happened. If you remember... Um, they had been to uh, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus had asked, Who is it that you say that I am? Peter had confessed him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, for which he was given the name Peter. And um, then Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and anything you loose on earth will be loosed, anything you bind on earth will be bound. And then with the last week, we saw that Peter immediately took a fall from his rise to high heaven and uh, got called Satan because he had wanted God to forbid what had happened, um, that, that Jesus had told them that they would go to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. The context of all of that was whether you see things through God's eyes or do you see things through the world's eyes, you know, what happens um, you know, when you make decisions. Are you thinking in worldly ways or you think in ways of the eternal, of the kingdom of God? And so... When Peter had confessed him as the Christ, Jesus had said, My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. When Peter had said, God forbid it, Lord, this isn't going to happen to you, then he said, um, You are thinking in the ways of the flesh. Now, immediately after that, and just before this passage, there's a part that gets skipped in the readings for some reason, which is too bad because it really kind of sets the context. They have left Caesarea Philippi and are going south on their way to Jerusalem, just as Jesus had said. And as they're going, several of the disciples have gathered together, and you can sort of imagine them walking along, and Jesus is up ahead, and they start whispering with one another and arguing with one another about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, the rise for this, obviously, was Peter. I mean, he had been given this grand, you know, sort of statement that you are the rock on which I will build my church. And so James and John and, and Andrew and all, they're jealous. I mean, they don't like this. Why is he so important? Well, yeah, but I do this. Well, yeah, but I do that. Well, yeah, but, you know, I don't know why they wouldn't appreciate me because I do this. And Jesus, knowing what's going on, even though he doesn't actually hear them, um, calls them to him. And when they all get together, that's when he starts this lesson. Isn't that interesting, the context in which he puts it, though? Because it sort of changes everything from such sort of an abstract that he got up one day and said, oh, by the way, if anybody, um, to there's gossip and, and, and you know, quarreling and dissension going on um, in, amongst his disciples. Now, I know, I, I know you all find that hard to believe, that, that the church would do that, but... But we have a long history of it. So, I mean, it even goes back before Jesus had been crucified. But it's not any different today. It's the same kinds of problems when it goes on. And it's true, by the way, not only in the church, but outside of the church. Because all too often what happens is there's all sorts of things that get talked about. They just don't ever get talked about with anybody who can solve it. You know, we argue about what should be done or what shouldn't be done or how things should be done. Um, but we don't talk to the people who are doing it. And we see it in church. We see it in, you know, amongst families. 
You know, people will argue, have you ever heard anybody talk about an aunt or an uncle? Cousin? They don't talk to the cousin, mind you, but they'll talk to each other about it. You know, I don't know what we're going to do with her. You know, I mean, it goes on all the time. We see it in the workplace. It goes on all the time. You know, we see it in schools where kids are doing this to each other. I mean, they've even taken it to a new height. They've had to start running public awareness uh, bulletin kind of things on um, the kids' channels now uh, about how you shouldn't post things about your friends on the Internet that aren't nice because it might hurt them. And I'm thinking, wow, I mean, how far have we come that we now have to you know, teach kids not to put things on the Internet saying things about people? And, and we've gotten to the point to where we don't even know whether it's okay or not. Matter of fact, do you remember when the National Enquirer was considered a joke? Anybody remember that? I mean, it's sort of risen to new heights, hasn't it? And, and, and conspiracy is the, the order of the day. You know, LBJ and Earl Warren plotted to have Kennedy assassinated. You all remember that one? Um, the, the truthers. Remember, you know the word truther? Those are the people who believe that the truth about it is that our government ordered those planes to be flown into the trade to, to the Twin Towers so that they could start a war and go off. The birthers, you know, that's the new one. You know, people say they don't believe that Barack Obama was born in this country and therefore he shouldn't be president. I mean, it's constantly a conspiracy that is going on. And all kinds of people talk. And we've risen it to almost a, a new level where we even have labels for it anymore. We give it titles. And we seem to be unable to discern between the difference between just talking to let off steam, because that is important, and gossiping. You know, we think gossiping has to be somehow or other juicy. Did you know that the best-selling magazines in the newsstand are gossip magazines? The most widely read columns are gossip columns. And we see it permeating through everything. Can you all remember the day when there wasn't any opinion in the newspaper unless it was in the opinion or editorial section? Nowadays, it's throughout the whole paper. I mean, it doesn't even matter. And, and as a result, We've created a culture that thrives on this sort of underground, you know, discussion. And then we wonder why it is so, that so little ever gets done. You know, we complain about the fact that our government can't seem to solve problems. But we participate in the very kinds of things that go on that, that undermine it. You know, we complain that, that you know, our institutions aren't uh, reliable and worthy anymore. And yet we do the very things that undermine the very underpinnings of it. We complain that the family is not as strong as it once was. And yet we participate in the same kind of gossip that destroys it and destroys all credibility. And we even have convinced ourselves that we do it because, well, I was just trying to find out. Have you ever anybody come up to you and said, I need to tell you something, but don't tell anybody I said it. You ever get that? 
I don't know, my job, I get it all the time, I can tell you. In spite of the fact that I have a standard line I always use, which is, you can tell me anything you want to, but if you told me that you, if I can't tell anybody that you said it, then it does me no good whatsoever, so as far as I'm concerned, it didn't happen. <laughs> um, because what do you do with information like that? I mean, what are you going to do with information that you're not allowed to tell anybody where you got it from? I mean, what do you do say? I have a, an anonymous source in a high place that's informed me. I mean, <laughs> I mean, how are you supposed to deal with that? It's impossible. And yet, nobody wants to be responsible. Well, I wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I wouldn't want them to be mad at me. I just want to talk about them. And if you think about it, any time that we, we, we do that, that we tell people, you don't tell anybody I said this, then we're essentially saying, I want to talk about them, but I don't want to be responsible for it. That's the bottom line of it. We, I want to do it in the dark. I want to do it in the shadows so that people won't know. And you have to wonder, why do we even feel that's important? You know, why is it that we would think that there's something significant about what we would have to say if we can't say something that everybody can know that we said it? You know, we even see it with politicians. You know, they'll say things about their opponents when their opponents aren't there. But when their opponents are there, they don't say that anymore. Now they say something different. In spite of the fact that you can watch it on tape. But that doesn't matter, does it? So it shouldn't be terribly surprising to us that all of us have gotten caught up in this because it's become a culture. It's become a way of life. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is confronting. He has a bunch of apostles, all of whom think they know what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, and they're going to make sure that it ends up that way, which means that one of them has to be in charge. And they are back there jockeying for a position in the kingdom of God. And it's this context in which Jesus draws them to himself. And he says, look, if one of your brothers sins against you, you need to go to them in private. Don't call them out in public. You know, don't wait until the annual meeting. Don't wait until the family reunion and stand up in front of everybody and do it. Don't stand up, you know, at the, at the board meeting and embarrass your, your president of your company. I mean, do it in private. Say, look, this isn't working. Does anybody know of anything that, that their job that doesn't work? Yeah, really. <laughs> but are we willing to go tell the people who could actually do something about it? Part of it, I think, is that we don't think they care. And, and maybe they don't. I don't know. It depends on the person, I reckon. But we don't even bother to tell them now because they might not like it. And so... We don't say anything. But Jesus says that doesn't work in the kingdom of God. You can't have the sort of inner thoughts, life, and inner you know, imaginings about things and, and all the stuff that is separate from the relationships in which you're in. Because what it does is it's destructive. And, and you've seen it happen. I mean, have you ever noticed that, that if you tell a rumor often enough, it becomes true whether it was true or not? I mean, it's astounding. 
to me how just the mere turmoil of the, the word filtering through can somehow or other create its own life. And, and nobody is willing to go talk to the people who actually would know and say, what, what's that all about? You know, I don't, I don't think I like this. And, and yet, without doing that, how would we ever resolve anything? And yet, if you look at our society, guess what? We're not resolving anything. I mean, divorce rates are at an all-time high. You know, we have um, all trust in our politicians and our government is at an all-time low. You know, uh, trust in all of our institutions are at an all-time low. And, and what we're doing is we're devolving into almost an animalistic type of world in which it's every man for himself. You know, maybe Nietzsche was right. Only the strongest will survive. Which means I get mine, you're on your own. But that's the antithesis of the kingdom of God. What Jesus says is that that path ultimately leads to destruction. It ultimately leads to isolation and death. And we see that happening with the a government that's isolated from its populace. We see it happening with a school system that's isolated from its community. And, and well, we've got these policies. Have you ever called a customer service rep and said, well, our, they go, our, well, our policy is, anybody tell you that? I, had, I was talking to a phone representative one time. They get, well, our policy is, and they said this about 15 times. And I said, you know, here's the problem is that I don't really care what your policy is. <laughs> Because it's not my policy. <laughs> and it doesn't fix my problem. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but our policy is, I said, is there anybody I could talk to who can say something other than what the policy is? <laughs> because they couldn't go anywhere with it. That sort of isolation, you can almost see it. This is a customer service representative. This person is charged with the responsibility to be of help to people who call in, and all they can say is, well, I'm sorry, but our policy is, well, good grief, I could have read that somewhere. I didn't need their help with that. But that's what our life is becoming like. And what Jesus says is, look, that ain't going to work. If you want real reconciliation, here's what it's going to take. First of all, if somebody does something, go to them and talk to them about it. Now, what's amazing about that, did you know that 90% of the time that will resolve the problem? Most of the things that we're upset about, whether it's with our kids, our spouse, you know, anybody, is because we don't really understand. We, we've conjured all this stuff up in our mind about what, you know, have you ever had your spouse say something to you and it just really set you off? Because you assumed that by it they meant all kinds of stuff. You know, I, one of the things that Judy can do that just really pushes my buttons is that if, if she says or does anything that implies in any way that I am stupid, I go through the roof. I mean, I just, I, I launch. And it's really funny because most people out there, I think, think I'm stupid, and that doesn't bother me. <laughs> but but, but um, in my family... It just really sets me off because when I was growing up, I was the youngest kid, 
Uh, my dad worked second shift. I never saw him, so my older sister and my mother were the only people around, and they constantly were telling me how stupid I was. And so if a female in my house tells, imply, I mean, she didn't have to say you're stupid. I mean, it didn't get that far. It, she can just say, well, what do you think? Or something, well, what do you mean, what do I think? I mean, like I'm not able to, th- I mean, I'm gone. And all of a sudden, I'm working on all this stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with anything she's talking about. Y'all ever do that? I'm not alone, am I? That'd be scary. And unless I can calm down enough to say, are you trying to say this about, are you saying I'm dumb? Then, well, no, what I meant was, what are you you talking about? I don't understand. What were you thinking? Because I meant literally, what were you thinking? So you really want to know what I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, I would think it was obvious what I was thinking. Well, it's not obvious to me. So you don't think I'm an idiot. (laughs) It takes all those steps. Part of that's just to take time to calm down. But part of it is that if you don't do that, I could go away thinking she thinks I'm an idiot. Who does she think she is? What right does she have to think I'm an idiot? She's not as smart as I am. She's an idiot. I mean, we could go on this for weeks. And... That's when you live together. How often do you do that with your boss? How many people here think their boss is an idiot? I want to ask you to raise your hand. But But we don't talk to them about it, do we? I mean, this kind of stuff goes on all the time. And what Jesus says is if you will go to them and they listen, then, then you've restored that relationship. You've regained it. It's back, and that's good. And, and statistics have shown, I mean, they've done studies of this. 90% of the time, that resolves it. It's amazing. Wouldn't it be great if our government would bother to resolve their problems 90% of the time before we had to even find out about it? Boy, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> In my world, it depends on whether it's cloudy or not, but... Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, wouldn't it be great if they actually sat down and talked and actually resolved things? Nowadays, we seem to think it's success if they can go play golf and not beat each other with the golf clubs. I mean, oh, they're great friends. Well, but what about the problem? I mean, it doesn't get resolved. Well, if we think that about people who really aren't close, particularly, I mean, these are the people who work together or have to work together even, probably don't even want to work together. Isn't it even more true when it comes to our, our friends and our families and our church? Isn't it even more difficult if we don't do those things? If we let those things filter through and fester? Now, I don't mean to say that sometimes you don't need to just... Have you ever been just mad and, and I'm just mad and, and I just need to get it out, but I don't want you to pay any attention to all the stuff I'm saying. I just need to rant and rave for a minute. Nobody does that? Okay. I have it. I mean, if you're around, when Ruth knows because she sees me. When I get really frustrated with the church, I walk around and go, what planet is this? <laughs> That's my phrase for ranting and raving. So just sort of, it's shorthand. <laughs> it gets it all out at the same time. Because sometimes you just need to let the emotion out. Well, to do that, make sure you find somebody who knows that's what you're doing and, and isn't going to assume that you mean everything you say. 
Because sometimes it's important first to get the emotion out before you can get to the problem. But once you've done that, you need to go to the person. Now, what happens if they go, it's your problem, not mine. I don't care. Which is what we're all terrified of, isn't it? Um, that, that if we actually sat down and talked about this conflict, that they wouldn't care. Well, what they say is, well, go find a couple of other people. You know, a couple of, in this case, the church, go find a couple of other people so you can bring them back with you so that they can all hear the conversation. Have you ever noticed that it's hard to say, you know, such mean things to people when there's somebody watching you? (laughs) Not Richard. (laughs) He says, no, I can do it then too. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the reasons why counseling sometimes helps people is that it's harder to call people those names in front of a counselor because you don't look very good when you're doing it. And so that's why Jesus is saying, if that doesn't work, sometimes just the emotion of the moment is too much for two individuals to deal. So, so go and get some, a couple of people and, and talk about it amongst you, and, and maybe that'll work. Did you know that, that 9% of the, the 100% that we've been talking about, of the time that resolves the rest of it? Or maybe not 9%, 5%, something like that. I don't know what statistic it is, honestly, but I do know it's 90. But somewhere in between there, a bunch of it gets resolved, more than half. And then if that doesn't work, they say, take it to the church. Now, he didn't literally, now you have to remember, Jesus did not have a hierarchy of a church when he said this. You know, we, he didn't have a worldwide institution with people who met on Sundays. He had a bunch of apostles that followed. So what he was really saying is, if that doesn't work, bring it to the group. Let's all sit down and talk about it. And he says, if that doesn't work, then treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. Because if they won't listen to that, there isn't any hope. And I want to talk about why he uses that phrase in a moment. But how would we bring it to the church if that isn't going to work? Well, and I would say, by the way, if that doesn't work, then maybe you need to deal with those groups. You need to have a family meeting. If it's family, you need to get all your friends together and talk. It's all, you know, if there's conversation going on with your friends. You need to get together with your co-workers and your boss and everybody and have a conversation. You know, you need, it it applies across the board. It's not just for the church. So what does it mean that if they won't even listen to the church, treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile? What do you all think that means? Shun them? That's sort of the traditional understanding, isn't it? The only problem is, is did y'all ever think about the fact there was a tax collector standing there? Matthew's a tax collector. Treat him like Matthew. So maybe he doesn't mean shun them. What does Jesus want to do with Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners in general? Redeem them. See, there's a fundamental concept here that Jesus has that all of God's creation needs to be brought back in, not that they need to be excluded. You know, it's about how do we bring them back in. So what would be the difference then between a non-believer and a believer? It's not a trick question, it's obvious.
One believes, <laughs> and the other one doesn't. And that's what Jesus is really saying, is that if, if someone gets together and, and doesn't even believe the church, then they're not really a believer. They may have claimed to be a believer, but they're not really a believer. Because if you can go that far and not deal with it, then you're not on the right wavelength. Now, why would he say that they're not a believer, and what would be the distinction? That really goes to the last part of this passage, where he now shares this thing that he had told Peter, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. If two of you agree in my name, it will be done for you. Remember all those passages? For lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. All of those kinds of things that he's talking about here all bring this to a conclusion in it because what happens with believers is that we are not important are we our opinion is not the right one whose opinion is the right one god's opinion so the goal is not to see who can make their case the best or or strive to win the best the goal is to hear the voice of god and to do what he wants. And if a person, if the church says, well, look, you know, you, you can't treat people like that. I mean, that's, that's not what we're about here. And the person refuses to listen, then in Jesus' saying, they're not listening to God. Because the assumption is the real church listens to God. How's that for a radical concept? Now, do you all believe the real church listens to God? Hmm? They're going, oh yeah, the real church. Where is that, right? <laughs> Therein lies the problem. That's why the divisions amongst the church are so critical and why it is that, that they are so disastrous for the world because we lose our sense of witness to the world. If we argue with one another constantly, if we can't even get along, why would the world believe that we have heard anything from God? Why would they believe that it's anything different than my opinion? Okay, that's a bunch of people who they think that. This people over, they think that. And that's pretty much what it is. We all divide up into factions and go to war again. If it's going to work, it's going to require something of all of us. And that's that we begin to subsume ourselves to the will of God. We begin to see things from God's eyes, not from worldly eyes. We have to work at asking ourselves constantly, am I thinking in worldly ways? Am I thinking in godly ways? Because the truth is, is that when the church thinks in worldly ways, it acts worldly. And when the church thinks in godly ways, it acts godly. But it's crucial for the health of the world that we begin to think in God's ways because he's the one who created it all. And if we don't do that, every one of us, then woe be unto us. Because the light of the world, that lighthouse, that city built on a hill that we've heard so much about, all of those things are basically drawing everybody to a bunch of rocks where they're going to crash and burn. 
because we're no different than anybody else. It requires a humbling of ourselves. I had that experience early on. I was a, the senior warden of my parish before I went to seminary, and uh, we built a, a new building. And when we built the new building, we didn't have enough money to finish it. So we, we were worshiping in, in the building, and it was bare. I mean, <laughs> we had uh, folding chair, metal chairs, and it had walls and electricity and stuff, but, I mean, there was no real decoration. We did have an altar and a pulpit and, a, and an organ. And that was it. It was on concrete floors. And so finally we got the money together to get carpet in it. Some of you heard about the carpet before. And so when we got the carpet, now this, we only had one building, mind you. So this was a multi-use building. We had our parish dinners in there and coffee hour was in the church right after. Everything happened in there. And so there was this huge discussion in the vestry about what color of carpet should we get. Well, being the very devout and holy person that I am, I thought that we should have red. Because that's the church color, right? And so I insisted we have to have red. It wouldn't be a church if we didn't have red. I mean, it, it sets it apart as a sanctuary, as, as a holy place. I mean, I worked a lot to come up with the arguments. The church is built on the blood of the martyrs, and that's why the rugs are red. I mean, do you want to spit on the blood of the martyrs? What's wrong with it? I mean, they sounded really good, I have to tell you. They even convinced me. And Willie Pratt, God rest his soul, he's now dead, who really was one of my best friends at the time, um, although I hated him, insisted that that was the dumbest idea that he had ever heard in his life. Who in their right mind has parish dinners on red plush carpeting? I mean, that doesn't make sense. We need brown carpeting. Well, at the time, we had this principle that until we all came to an agreement, we weren't going to have carpet. And so the vestry meetings, Willie being just as stubborn as I was and just as convinced he was right as I was, went till 12.30, 1 o'clock. And I don't really, you know, looking back, I'm not real sure why we invited the rest of the vestry, <laughs> because he and I were doing all the talking. <laughs> um, you know, they could have stayed home and we could have given them the cliff notes. And this went on and on and on and on for like six months, until finally the vestry rose up. <laughs> and said, they've decided this agreement stuff isn't going to work. <laughs> um, and so they said, we're just going to take a vote. And it was nine to three to get brown carpet. <laughs> I was livid. I was the senior warden for crying out loud. How could they disrespect my position in such a way? I was going to end up in seminary. I mean, I, that's what my plan was. I, was. I mean, I had brought in all of these biblical arguments for all this stuff. All he kept talking about was dinners and coffee. It just made no sense whatsoever. And then we had a, our, our first pancake supper. And um, one of the kids knocked over the syrup <laughs> onto the floor. And I looked at the syrup as I was sitting there. And, and Willie was sitting at a different table. We, we were the closest to friends as long as we were far away from each other at that point. <laughs> and uh, I looked over at him, and I went over to him, and I hugged him, and I said, you were right. 
you know, red carpet really wouldn't look too good with maple syrup. <laughs> the whole time, now I don't know whether Willie was looking at things through God's eyes or not. I suspect none of us were, honestly. But I do know one thing for sure, I wasn't. You know, I was trying to look at what I thought was right. The problem was it was, was the eye that was in it. It didn't even occur to me to ask what God wanted. To ask how God wanted it to be. And so, if we really want real reconciliation, whether it's in our families, in our church, in our government, or, or wherever, it'll never be based on worldly principles. Because worldly principles is made up of a bunch of eyes who all have different opinions. And it will always be a battle. Would we not spend our time and energy and resources better if every one of us attempted to hear the will of God and do what he wants and to follow his will? Now, to do that, it's going to take some work. It's going to have to be that we really work at reconciling. Because just like Jesus said, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, that doesn't mean that we can shun them and get rid of them. That means there's someone who needs to know the will of the Lord, who needs to know the saving grace of God in their life. That doesn't make them an evil person. It makes them a person who is here, and the reason why you're here is to help them to see God and to know God. I mean, how many marital spats could be resolved if we both decided that God's in charge? Let's see what he wants. And until we know what he wants, we won't do anything. I mean, most, if you think about it. And so the principles that Jesus is laying down here in Matthew 18, which, by the way, are, is one of the core values of our church that we, that we try to teach, and that I would hope that you would try to teach your kids and your grandkids, has to do with reconciliation, but not just let's all get along, but reconciliation that's based on seeing things through the Father's eyes, through letting go of yourself and living for Christ. Because it's only then that we truly find our real selves. Do you remember what he said to Peter last week at the end of it? If anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. If anyone would attempt to save his life, he will lose it. Anyone who attempts to lose his life for my sake, he will find it. So, there's a principle in there that we can all apply to all of these things, which is that the, to start with, I need to lose who I am so that God can be the one who speaks through me because he knows me better than I do anyway. You know, it's not saying I need to lose who I am to another human being because quite honestly, they're probably not much better than you are, if at all. But I need to lose myself to God and when we do that, I look back in very practical applications of what it might have been like those six months. What if Willie and I, or even the priest by that matter, had thought about saying to Willie and I, I tell you what, why don't you two stop and pray about it? 
And when you all come to a conclusion with what God's saying, you come back and tell us. Now, I don't know what we've gotten resolved quicker than six months because we were both pretty hard-headed and dense. It would take us a long time to hear God. But what I do know is that the rest of the vestry wouldn't have to stay up till 1230 every month. <laughs> Listen to two people argue. And that would have been a great improvement. And so the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, knowing that he created everything. He created me. He knows how the world ought to be. And my job in this world is, one, to listen, and two, to do what he wants me to do. That's really, it's that simple and that hard. But until we stop and listen, then we won't have very much to say that will be constructive. And reconciliation will never be a reality. So, if someone offends you, Go talk to them. Tell them why you're offended. Don't talk to somebody else about it unless you just need to blow off steam first. But talk to them. And then if that doesn't resolve it, get a couple of other people you both trust and come together. You know, and and, then talk about it again. And if that doesn't resolve it, get together the whole group of you and talk about it. And if that doesn't resolve it, begin to realize that they're not on the same page. And ask yourself, Lord... Give me the word so that I can help us to get on the same page. Because that's what God has done. You ever think about that? God sent the prophets. Said, don't do that. You know, destruction and doom and ruin will come upon you. Destruction, doom, ruin came upon, they still did it. He first of all, even first of all, he went to them and gave them the commandments. Well, give them private here. Here are the commandments. Here's what you need to do. Secondly, here, I'm sending my messengers. They'll tell you what you need to do. When that doesn't work, did he say, that's it. I'm wiping you out. I'm not ever, I'm turning my back on you. I'm having nothing to do with you anymore. No, he sent his only son into the world to die so that we might have life. Jesus hung on a cross to bring all of us stubborn, stiff-necked people into his kingdom. Not so that, gee, so because we're such great people, he didn't want to um, you know, miss out on us. Because he really wanted to open the way so that we begin to see the world as it really is, the way he created it. But if each one of us does not begin to practice it daily, and I have to admit, sometimes I have to practice it second by second because it's not very easy. We'll never change anything. But if we do, if we could start a movement, imagine how different the world could really be. Amen. You were just listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrews is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.